0: This is the day that the Lord has made. Scripture says, let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen? Amen. And if you are a Christ follower, you should be glad. And um, at least about one thing today, and it's the most profound biblical truth that you will ever know. It's also the subject of the first formal sermon that I ever preached in a tiny little church in West Gardner, Maine. You know what my text was? Jesus loves me, this I know. (laughs) Over the last couple of weeks, we've been focusing our attention on the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray as his disciples, and it prompted me yet again to contemplate uh, the incomprehensible and humbling truth that you and I, if we are in Christ, can cry out to the God of all creation as our Father. That's uh, one of the things that became very apparent in that prayer. Be able to call him our Father. Not only should that reminder fill our hearts with an uncontainable joy and sense of spiritual well-being, but it should also move our souls toward an irrepressible sense of, of heartfelt humility. For we have been shown undeserved Favor. We just sang about it. Grace upon grace, right? And with that thought, I was drawn this week toward two powerful texts of Scripture echoing both of those sentiments. It's the sentiments of security in our relationship with our Father and humility because of our relationship with our Father. And My plan is to address them today and next week. Both of those concepts. The first is the text regarding our attitude of humility and prayer in light of our undeserved salvation. And in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, Jesus told a parable contrasting the attitudes of a tax gatherer and the Pharisee that went to the temple to pray. You might remember that text. That's the text that we're going to look at next time. Today's text, however, comes out of Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 17, which highlights the assurance that we receive from the Holy Spirit that we are indeed children of God and we can call on our Father as our Abba, our Father. Let me ask you a question as we start. Do you really believe that God loves you? Now, I preached that very first sermon, and I could stand and tell you today that I still believe it. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves you. But do you really honestly know it? Deep in your heart of hearts, in the center of your soul... Do you believe that God Almighty, the creator of the entire universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the transcendent, self-existent one, who spoke face-to-face with Moses on the mountain, do you truly understand that the Father of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, loves you like a son or a daughter? Yes, I do. Amen. Yes, I do. Amen. You know when somebody knows that they know that Jesus loves them. And you know that he knows that Jesus loves them not because it's a theological necessity. Because God has to love you, right? Otherwise he would cease to exist because God is love. Do you really know it? that way, deep inside of your heart? All of us who have the Spirit of God living inside of us should be able to say yes. Yes, a resounding yes, and you know why? Because that kind of assurance, that kind of confidence, that kind of settled trust is one of the most important ministries, personal ministries of the Holy Spirit to us as believers. The Bible says that God has poured out his spirit into our hearts to continually testify to us in countless ways that we are in fact loved by God as his precious children. He is there, the Holy Spirit, to constantly remind us of that fact. Constantly. He's there to remind us of the same truth that the Lord God Almighty, Yahweh himself, spoke to his children through the words of Isaiah when he said, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You are precious in my sight. You are honored, and I love you. That's Isaiah 43. See, we need that assurance today, don't we? I know I do. And I think many of you probably do too. I need to have that gut level understanding of how much my father really loves me and cares for me. Because when I really grasp that reality, when you get a hold of that reality through the inward witness of the Holy Spirit, we grow stronger spiritually and more faithful in the way that we live our lives, don't we? In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, Eugene Peterson paraphrases it like this in the message, what marvelous love the Father has extended to us. Just look at it. We're called children of God. That's who we really are. And the message that I'm about to share with you is a message that I will never grow weary of sharing because it really and literally has changed my life. It obviously has changed someone else's life. And hopefully it's changed yours. This aspect of the Holy Spirit's involvement in the life of every believer is critical, not just to the framework, the framework, but especially the outworking of our faith. Because the Spirit's assurance is the strength of our faith. That's where our strength lies. One of the greatest truths concerning our our heritage in the kingdom of God is the fact that we're not slaves anymore. We're not butlers, we're not doormen, we're not nameless servants, hired hands, or undocumented immigrants. We are sons and daughters of God. Legitimate children, legally adopted, spiritually born, and eternally secure in the family. Amen? Now, how can we be so sure of that? Evidence. Evidence. The Spirit posts it quite definitively in giant billboard-like letters in one of the richest passages of Scripture in the entire New Testament. Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 12 with me beginning in verse 12, and we're going to read down through verse 17. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That is a great verse. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God which, and fellow heirs with Christ, If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Important finish up there. If there was ever a spiritual truth that needed to be displayed on the billboards of our minds, this is it. The security of our relationship with God as our father. It's confirmed by the spirit in at least three areas in this text that I want to highlight for you today. At least three. There's probably many more. But I'm going to give you three. And the first one is this. There is a formal acknowledgement by God in this passage. We have the Holy Spirit's formal acknowledgement. Again, in verses 12 to 14, we'll work our way through it. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Here's the proof that a person is a son or a daughter of God. So my question is, because it begs the question, are you being led by the Spirit? And if you're personally experienced God's hand at work in your life, if you're experiencing that, it it is one piece of evidence that you are one of his children. Now, what do I mean by experiencing God's hand in your life? Well, let me ask you a few penetrating questions here that you can just kind of Think in your mind, rhetorical questions. Are you growing in your understanding of God's word? Do you sense God's prompting you in certain directions and making certain decisions in your life? Are you becoming more sensitive to sin? Now, let me clarify that. Not the sins of others. Your sins. Is the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are they becoming more evident in your life? Is your character changing, in other words? Do you find yourself talking about the things of God more and enjoying it more? Is your lifestyle changing, becoming more in step with Jesus? Are you concerned about truth, personal integrity, spiritual authenticity? Do you want to pray? Are you passionate about Jesus? And do lost and hurting people matter to you? These are just some of the things you kind of mentally go through in your mind to check whether you're in the faith or not, whether the Spirit's witnessing and leading you or not. These are some of the areas toward which the Spirit leads us and incites us. Now, don't get me wrong. Paul's not saying that this leading is never, ever interrupted. Sometimes we're simply just not listening or we refuse to follow his prompting. But what Paul is saying essentially here is that true believers are generally characterized by a life that is being directed by the Holy Spirit. Then, a person who merely professes to be a Christian, just with their mouth, but has no reality in their life, knows nothing about this leading. They may be listening to the words that I'm speaking right now and going, I I don't know what you're talking about. He or she may be outwardly moral or overtly religious and actively involved in a church even, but that doesn't prove that that person is indeed a son or a daughter of God. They must be personally manufacturing everything in themselves. They could be. Living life in their own strength. But the true child of God, however, is motivated by something other than self. They're motivated and directed by the Holy Spirit. Exactly how that happens, how the Spirit leads us, kind of incomprehensible it's it's a spiritual thing right we simply don't understand the supernatural intricacies that are involved in all of that only God knows about that and how that happens but through the Spirit of God God will lead us not force us but lead us into his perfect will amen just as Isaiah clarified Quote, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher, and your ears will hear a word behind you, saying, this is the way, walk in it. That's Isaiah chapter 30, verses 20 and 21. Now, God is not necessarily saying that here in this verse, that you and I will literally see his form before our eyes or hear an audible voice in our ears. Not necessarily, you might, but not necessarily. But he is reassuring us that as sons and daughters, we will be clearly led in the right direction, okay? Let me give you an example of how that can look in real life. A few years ago, before he died, one of my high school best friends Um, whom I had much interaction with in the latter year of his life, had um, ALS, Lou Gehrig's syndrome. It's a very, very debilitating disease and just a hideous way to go. And um, he had a spasm one night and chewed his tongue, which required hospitalization. Now, if you know people with ALS, they they can't move. So his feeding tube had also fallen out. The next day, I was talking to a good friend of both of ours in Massachusetts who was also a Christian. And we had been ministering together too, Mark. She was back home in Massachusetts and she shared that she was awakened during the middle of the night out of a sound sleep with an incredible burden to pray for him and immediately did who can explain what that's all about and how God does those kinds of things but he does he does and the psalmist wrote for such is our god our god forever and ever he will guide us until death that's psalm 48:14 That's the Spirit's guidance, the prompting of the Holy Spirit. People who have no relationship with Christ have no such guarantee that they will ever experience any such thing. Are you being guided by the Holy Spirit? Not necessarily just like that, but in other ways? How do we know that we're being led by the Spirit? Well, I believe it's confirmed in at least two primary areas that you can really know First of all, through spiritual illumination. Basically, that's our eyes become opened. Okay? You begin to understand what God desires of you and for you. God's purpose for your existence, for example. That you were made by God and for God. And your life begins to make sense all of a sudden. Things start to make sense about your life. You read the Bible, and you finally get it. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, some very familiar verses. It says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And then what does it say? In all your ways, acknowledge him and what? He will make your path straight. Who's doing that? God's doing that. You're going to see it. Your eyes are going to become open through spiritual illumination. He will make your path straight. He'll reveal to you what your path should be. It's only by the Spirit's direction that we can understand spiritual truth. He makes God's Word clear to us. A person that only professes to believe in Christ does not have that understanding. But as D.L. Moody once said, "Quote: The Bible was not given to us to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives, unquote. So the second primary way that the Spirit leads us is through personal transformation. In other words, our lives get changed. Our eyes get opened and our lives get changed. Romans chapter 6 and verses 12 through 13 says it like this, Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely over to God for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Understand what Paul's saying there? If you've got the spirit of God in your life, your life's gonna change. So the question is, have there been any changes in your life? Sometimes we're not even aware of the changes in our lives. Sometimes the Spirit accomplishes those changes in our lives and we're not necessarily aware of it and we don't find out until somebody else tells us that they notice it. Ever experienced that before? That's the best way to figure it out. When someone comes up to you and looks at your face and they say, What's different about you? You've changed. I've been watching you. Although we're not consciously aware of his work in us all the time, he nevertheless is at work in us at all times. Amen? So when we're being led by the Spirit, our eyes become opened and our lives get changed. Romans chapter 8, look at verses 5 to 9 here for a moment. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Here's how it works according to these verses, right? If your life is not changing, chances are very good that you're not being led by the Spirit. If you're not being led by the Spirit, then chances are very good that the Spirit is not living in you. And if the Spirit is not in you, then you do not belong to Christ, it says in this passage. And if you don't belong to Christ, then you are not a child of God. And if you're not a child of God, well, then the next step is obvious. You need to become one. Amen? You need to become one. And that's there for the taking. You just simply have to bow your heart and your soul and your mind and all of your being to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen? You see, God longs for you to be one of his sons or his daughters. That's why he sent Jesus. That's why he made entrance into his family so majestically simple. How simple? This simple, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the right, the authority, to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 1, verse 12. Or John said that in his gospel. See, we have that assurance in us by the Holy Spirit that he has formally acknowledged it All who have been led by the Spirit into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and are being led into a growing intimacy with Him by the Spirit, these are the sons and daughters of God. Our sonship is confirmed by His formal acknowledgement right here in the Scriptures, but also by something much more astounding. This is the second thing. Much more personal. As His children, we have... Free access to God, amen? Free, not just free access, but free and familiar access. That's verse 15. Look at what it says. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading again to fear, fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. That's free and familiar access. In other words, we have, and some of you have heard me talk about this before, I love to refer to this as refrigerator rights. Remember that? For those of you that don't know what refrigerator rights are, it was purportedly coined by Dr. Will Miller, who wrote a book under the same name. You can buy the book. The title was Refrigerator Rights. But the refrigerator rights, according to Dr. Miller, Defines the depth and the closeness and the intimacy of a relationship. In other words, friends with refrigerator rights can help themselves to anything in your refrigerator without asking permission. How many people do you know that can open your refrigerator without asking permission first? Presumably, this would include all who live with you, like your kids. I would hope. But are there others? Among your friends and acquaintances, how many are so at home, when in your home, that they can raid your fridge without asking you first? Just get in there and eat your food, drink your drinks. The people in your life with whom you share refrigerator privileges Let me tell you, they are different than casual relationships, aren't they? Aren't they? They are people who are essentially have become family to you. And even more than family. One of the richest truths in all of Scripture is the fact that we have been adopted by God into his family as adult sons and daughters. Verse 15. We possess all the rights of children in the family. All the privileges, all the benefits, all the blessings, and all the responsibilities of a member of that family. In other words, you're like an heir. The results of our adoption are absolutely astounding as children of God. And this week, you can meditate on Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 and see what some of those adoption blessings are. But here are some of them. We have complete and continued forgiveness by God. We have been declared righteous by God, justified. We have been reconciled to God and restored to full fellowship with him. We've enjoyed, we can enjoy undreamed of freedom, unconditional love, and unlimited grace, as well as possessing an undeniable set of responsibilities and the experience of Christ-like suffering. That's all part of that, being part of the family, right? You know what adoption means in the Bible? In this verse, it means that we have received the spirit of fatherly care, and we are no longer bound by the fear of being enslaved by a hard taskmaster. God is not a spiritual slave driver to us, or as one man has suggested, the great hangman in the sky. Or a policeman with a club who's going to bat us over the head every time we stumble and we fall. No, why? Because Paul insists right here that we have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but we have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Spiritual refrigerator rights. that's what we have. We no longer have to think about ourselves as slaves or people in bondage or enslaved to sin or chained to this list of rules and regulations to counteract sin, constantly living in the fear that as soon as we slip up, God is going to come down hard on us. We don't have to live that way anymore. People who are far from God, you know, they're imprisoned by their fear, whether they admit it or not. You won't get them to admit it half the time, but they are. They're imprisoned by their fear. No matter how cleverly they try to smooth it over or deny its reality, when pressed to the limit, they are constantly subject to fear because of the fact of God's judgment on sin. And everybody has that internal witness, whether they deny it or not. Until a person lets Christ deal with that sin, forgiving it and cleansing it and removing its guilt and reversing its control, fear rules them. Fear will rule them. Slavery to sin brings slavery to fear, wrote John MacArthur. And one of the gracious works of the Holy Spirit is to deliver God's children from both. Slavery to sin and slavery to fear. That means that the devil can no longer keep you enslaved to him by threatening you with your greatest fear. What's your greatest fear? Stand up here and speak in public because that was the number one fear of most people when surveyed. The second is probably death. Are you enslaved to that fear? The fear of death? But because of our adoption into Christ's family, death no longer can be thrown in our faces to intimidate us. There's a lot worse things than death to a Christian. Because we've been delivered from that fear of death. Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 14 to 15 says it very clearly. Since the children, as he calls them, are people of flesh and blood, Jesus himself became like them and shared their human nature. He did this so that through his death he might destroy the devil who has the power over death and in this way set free those who were slaves all of their lives because of their fear of death. You can take that scripture to the bank. As God's children, adopted into his family, you and I, we don't any longer have to f- live in fear of disappointing our father because of our imperfections. Isn't that great news? How many of you grew up? don't no. raise your hand. Fearing If you're going to lose face or lose your standing with your dad because of your imperfections or because you don't measure up or because you fail so often and fall so far short, way too many people grew up that way and are growing up that way. See, we don't have to fear that Because of the spirit of adoption as sons that we've received through faith in Jesus Christ, the spirit helps us to recognize that God has our best interests at heart all the time. And no matter what happens, we are still the apple of his eye. Believe that? If you believe that, you can raise your hand on that. Amen. Fantastic picture of this came to my attention through someone who wrote in Reader's Digest a long time ago. It's a story about someone's Aunt Ruby and Uncle Arnie who had adopted a baby boy after five years of trying unsuccessfully to conceive. And to their surprise, shortly after the adoption, Aunt Ruby discovered that she was pregnant. Isn't that always the way? And she later gave birth to a wonderful baby boy. And the story continues. One day when the two boys were eight and nine years old, the teller of the story was visiting Aunt Ruby and a woman in the neighborhood came to visit. And observing those two children at play, the woman asked, which boy is yours, Ruby? Aunt Ruby replied, both of them. The caller persisted. No, but I mean, you know, which one is adopted? Aunt Ruby didn't hesitate in her finest hour, she looked straight at the guest and she said, I've forgotten. See, when we're adopted as God's children, we become the object of his care and protection. He forgets all about our past and sees us as one of the family. Why? Because he's our Abba, as it says here. Not just our Heavenly Father, but our Abba. A term which Jesus used, totally shocking the Jewish community of his day. A term which he used in his prayer as he earnestly sought the strength of his father on the night he was betrayed and arrested in the garden. A term which one biblical scholar believes to be the primary, most important revelation of Jesus Christ in the entire New Testament. Opening up this possibility of undreamed of, un heard of intimacy with God in prayer, a term which Paul says the Spirit inspires our hearts to use as God's sons and daughters. We can cry out, Abba, Father. And the point is that through this spirit of adoption, our relationship with God becomes as intimate and as familiar, as free and as easy as the relationship was when my children were five or four or three years old and they'd crawl up on my lap and they'd look into my eyes and they would call me daddy. In fact, I still love it when my daughter calls me daddy. Even though she's not a kid anymore. And I love it when I hear one of our elders talk about his adult sons who still refer to him as daddy. It's so great. Now, I've recently, I've done a bit of reading on this subject about that whole terminology about Abba and daddy and all this. And to be linguistically accurate and honest, I must tell you that many scholars have argued against the fact that the Aramaic term Abba used only three times, by the way, in the New Testament, and only once by Jesus in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, they argue against the fact that it's a childlike term meaning daddy, linguistically. It is actually more akin to an adult son warmly saying, my father, or dear father. One scholar, James Barr, published an article in the Journal of Theological Studies, entitled, here's the title, Abba Isn't Daddy, in which he outlined the numerous problems with such an assertion, addressing them in detail, very academic. Another article gave this explanation. Of course, the Bible teacher or pastor's purpose in explaining the word Abba this way, as Daddy, is to show us that Jesus had a very intimate relationship with his father, not stoic or merely positional. It is what a loving father has with his son and and the son who lives securely and comfortably in that love. It is an important message, and it is true. This intimacy and love between the divine father and his son is as true as the existence of God himself. It is his very nature. But it is simply not true that Jesus' use of the term Abba means something a small child would utter in reference to his father. It does not mean daddy or papa. Period. Unquote. Now I have to admit that these articles and blogs may have enlightened my mind as a studier and a reader, but it did absolutely nothing for my heart. However, at the end of one purely academic and linguistic blog that I read, there was one response that got to the heart of it all for me. I'm going to read it to you. It's from a guy named Chris Messengill. Quote, I'm not a scholar or theologian or any other term. I'm just a person that has been transformed by my Abba's grace. You see, I was a meth addict for 10 years who also became a liar and a thief and an all-around piece of junk who could have just as easily beat you down in the street as shake your hand with no remorse. I was never raised in church. In fact, the home I grew up in didn't even own a Bible. I knew nothing of Jesus, but one great day on September 28th in 2008, I found myself face down in an altar screaming out to God, asking Him to please deliver me from what I had become. And immediately I felt love that was not of this world. And when I stood up, I was no longer the drug addict and the liar and the thief or anything else for that matter. I was simply just a product of my Abba's grace. So you guys keep giving him the formal title such as father, but I call him daddy. Because anyone can be a father, but it takes the love of a daddy to do what he'd done for me. Unquote. You know that kind of relationship with God, your father? I believe that's the loving and free, familiar relationship that he enjoins us to have with him, don't you? Oh, and by the way, just to follow up, I also read that in modern Hebrew, the term Abba has become commonly used as, you guessed it, daddy. John wrote, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. God has declared to all believers because of our adoption, I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You know that kind of God? Have you received the spirit of adoption which enables you to cry out to God as your Abba, your dear father, your daddy? And that word cry right there in that verse, it's a strong one, by the way. It says in verse 15, that we receive the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. That word cry means to exclaim, to clamor, to scream or cry out in a loud voice expressing deep emotion and fervency. It is used of Jesus' scream from the cross in Matthew 27, 50, when he cried out to his Father, yielding up his spirit. I can't even imagine what that sounded like. Can you? It wasn't just a whimper. Scripture says he cried out. Our Kent Hughes said it's not a reasoned cry, but a reflexive one, the cry of children. When you are in dire need, is your relationship characterized by such childlike intimacy that you can literally cry out like our kids do? Daddy, I need you. Can you do that? Do you feel like you can do that? Because to do that implies a real knowledge of God as a loving father. It means that we no longer see God as someone who is distant from us, but right there with us. He's not just a God who we believe in with our minds, but a father we trust in with our hearts. He's my father. He's my dad. In the words of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, quote, this is real Christianity. To cry, Abba, Father, is one of the most glorious proofs of sonship higher than anything we have ever considered before, unquote. Now, I'm going to tell you another story. And I tell you, if I live to be a hundred years old, I don't think I'll ever forget this story that I heard Brennan Manning tell in one of his conference talks on the subject, this subject, of our father as Abba, referencing a retreat that he gave in the Midwest some years ago. In his own words, he said, each night after the service, I went to this room where people came for counseling and healing prayer. And well, finally at the end of The night, the line ended at about midnight. I'm exhausted, he said, so I go to bed. At one o'clock in the morning, there's a knock on my door. So I get up, put on a robe, and I open the door, and it's a 78-year-old nun. I said, come on in, sister, Have have a seat. What can I do for you? Well, she began to cry uncontrollably little frail woman. Her whole body was just shaking. He said, I felt utterly helpless, powerless. Finally, when her tears subsided, I asked her, would you like to talk about it? She said, I've never told anybody this in my whole life, but it started when I was four years old and my father would crawl into my bed at night. And when I was nine years old, my father took my virginity, and by the time I was 12, I knew about every kind of sexual perversion you could read about in a dirty book. She said, Brennan, do you have any idea how filthy I feel? I have lived with so much hatred of my father and hatred of myself, I only go to the communion table when my absence there would make me conspicuous. Well, I prayed with her for about 20 minutes, he said, and for inner healing, and then I asked her, Sister, would you be willing for the next month to go off to a quiet place every single morning? Sit down in a chair and close your eyes. Lift your hands up to God and pray this one prayer over and over again. Abba, I belong to you. Abba, I belong to you. And at the outset of the course, you say it with your lips. But then your mind becomes conscious of the meaning of it. You can do this prayer while you're driving your car or while you're walking through the mall or while you're making your bed or while you're watching television or while you're sitting in church. And when you do this, I mean literally hundreds of times a day. Then you can do as Jesus says to do in Luke 18 and pray all day long and never lose heart. It's not a meaningless repetition, it's meaningful. So I asked the old nun, would you try it? And she said, yes, I'll try it. Two weeks later, Brennan says, I received the most moving and poetic letter I've ever gotten in the entire time of my ministry. So said, the old woman described the inner healing of her heart and the complete forgiveness of her father. And an inner peace she had never known before, and she ended her letter like this quote A year ago I would have signed this letter with my real name in religious life, Sister Mary Genevieve. But from now on, I'm just Daddy's little girl. Now I ask you this morning, do you know that kind of intimacy with your father? That you're just daddy's little girl or boy? That's exactly the kind of relationship that Jesus had with his heavenly father and that his father desires to have with us. It's only those who are truly sons and daughters of God who actually know in their hearts that they are sons and daughters of God who can cry out, Abba, Father, I belong to you. No one else can do that. For the unbeliever, it's a foreign and fearful concept. Those words can only be uttered comfortably and confidently in faith by the Spirit and through the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Galatians chapter four and verses six and seven, Paul writes, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Do you want to know that kind of intimacy? That's what the Spirit assures us we can have. Through the witness of the Holy Spirit within us, we get this last thing. That we have first-hand assurance. Verse 16. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. It is because of God's gracious and outrageous love for us that we have been adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ and we have been blessed with all the privileges of, the, of that relationship. The idea that Christians, of Christians being the adopted children of God is never seen as second rate in Scripture, ever nor was it by Paul's audience. Our adoption into the family is the greatest honor and privilege that could ever be bestowed upon someone. That is why Paul could write to the Ephesians words like these in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. I love verse 13, in him You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who has given us as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. The Spirit is not only our guarantee that we are indeed heirs, but he himself witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God, Paul says. Literally, that we are, in fact, born ones of God. We can know that. It's not just hearsay. It's fact. My friends, take God's word at face value. In 1 John chapter 5, listen to these words beginning in verse 11. And the testimony is this. That God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God. So that you may hope that you have eternal life. Is that what it says? What does it say? Say it again. No. That we can know that we have eternal life. And not that we will have eternal life, but we can know we have eternal life. We can know that we are children of God according to the Scriptures. But look at the progression that Paul says here in Romans chapter 8. We're not just children, but we're heirs. And not just heirs, but fellow heirs with Christ. Christ. That's what verse 17 says. And that means, as one man has said, that every adopted child of God will receive the full inheritance with the Son. Everything that Christ receives by divine right, we will receive by divine grace. You get that? And don't forget the suffering, because that's included too. But that's food for a whole other sermon. So let me close by asking you yet again, do you know that you're a child of God? Because God makes sure his children know that they are his children. That assurance comes from the Holy Spirit. Not just because he directs us to the scriptures that tells us about those truths, but because in some unexplainable and settling way, he confirms the witness of our own Innermost being that we have been made God's children through faith in Jesus Christ. Sometimes I'll bet some of you doubt your salvation. You may look at lack of progress or maybe setbacks or slip ups. Let me just assure you, because the word of God does right now before we end. That the spirit doesn't base his assurance on, the, on your progress or your lack of it. He bases it on whether or not you have been born from above. That's the basis. A true believer is no longer and never can be under God's condemnation. And we can no longer ever be separated from God's love. That's what the end of this chapter talks about. That is the Spirit's assurance. Our adoption as sons and daughters is so secure that you and I, if you're in Christ, if we're in Christ, can cry out with extreme and utter confidence, Abba, I belong to you. Can you say that? Let's pray. Oh, Father... Thank you so much that your spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God. Thank you that we can say with confidence if we're in Christ that we belong to you, our Father. God, I pray that there's not a person in this place that doesn't understand this truth right now and that if they don't know it deep down in their souls that they would bow their hearts to you this morning and cry out, Abba, I need you and that your spirit would come into their lives and give them the words as they leave this place that they can recite that Abba, I belong to you. We recognize that we are sinful people in dire need of your grace, but you have given it to us through your son Jesus Christ and his promise and his sacrifice and his resurrection that through our faith in that, in our acceptance of him, we can know that we are children of God. We love you, our Father, and I pray that your blessing be upon each and every soul in this place and within earshot of this message, this truth. For Jesus' sake, I pray, and to your glory, our Father. Amen.